Section 3 of Heraclitus, Man's Looking Glass and Survey of Life by Pierre du Moulin, translated by Heyman Lestrange. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Vanity of Man in His Actions Man, being born thus poor and miserable, what a while it is before he can guide himself, how long and laborious his instruction, what a while he trembles under the master's oar to learn vain words and knowledge that will deceive him, and in the end of all this travail, who sees not a froward humour and a despiteful perversity, and in a child all the vices of a man, as in a seed or kernel? The only way to quiet a child is to beat another before him. If any touch but one of his toys, he flings away the rest for anger. The love and liking which they bear to their babies are plain seeds of idolatry, and such are the children of the best parents. A grain of corn, though never so clean-dressed, makes straw when it springs again. He that is circumcised begets a child with foreskin on, thus we are driven to acknowledge, in the frowardness of our own children, the picture of our own corruption. After childhood comes youth, which is a brisk humour, a rash heat, that runs into all riot, rushes headlong into dangers, and rejects all admonitions. Oh, what a number perish in that way! How many in this age are poisoned with sensuality, which lulls them in the lap to strangle them? Treacherous Delilah that dallies with them, to betray them to the devil, an enemy far worse than the Philistines. Those pleasures are golden pills which hide their bitter under their beauty, and like fresh rivers that lose their pleasant relish in saltness, and drown their sweetness in the sea. Godliness cannot live under so dainty a dominion, the knowledge of God, which comes from heaven, will not be subject to the belly, nor dwell in swine. That lodging is fittest for the devil who, by the sufferance of our Saviour, entered into the swine and ran them headlong into the sea. The devil feeds the prodigal children with these husks of pleasure, instead of the bread of life which is the word of God. This heat a little cooled with years, and man grown ripe, now see what other vanities follow him less boisterous, but more sullen and obstinate. Then come cares chained together, domestical vexations, thoughts of a family, troubles of suit, travails of a painful trade to get maintenance for children who suck away all the substance, and to receive at length nothing but reproach and ingratitude. These evils make men ever distaste the present, and rely upon the future, always travailing to get a good which flies from us and being gotten, it melts in our hands and vanisheth away. If kept, it contents us not. It helps not our fear, nor quencheth our thirst. This evil looks many ways. There are many men who hazard their life to get their living, and miss the end to obtain the means, as he that sells his sword to buy a scabbard, or his horse for hay, and again to get money, and not therewith to serve his turn, but rather to serve his money, to have goods as one hath an ague, which rather gets the sick man than he it, or like the dog in the manger which eats not the hay, but grins if another come near it. Wretched people who live poor to die rich, who covet most when they are most in years, that is, make greatest provision when they are at the end of their journey. He that fears God to dismantle himself of so great a mischief will consider with himself what the price and value of riches are, and will thus reason. The devil offers these, but he never offers piety or the knowledge of God. God shows what account he makes of riches, when he gives them most abundantly to the wicked, into whose bosom they fall, as a purse into a privy. 
Our Saviour shows what account he made of money when he gave Judas his purse, but to his blessed apostles he gave his Holy Spirit. Had he thought riches the true good, sure he would have provided enough for himself, but he had not where to rest his head. He honoured poverty by his own example, and the Lord and Sovereign of the world would have nothing in the world to teach us to condemn the world. A little wealth serves to live well, and less to die well. Godliness is great gain if a man be content with that he hath. Naked we came into the world, and naked we shall go out. Quiet poverty is better than troublesome riches, yet such is the silly nature of man that he had rather fetch water from a raging and violent stream with hazard and peril than from a small brook or rivulet with ease and safety. To get a mass of money with danger and disquiet rather than a small sum with peace and security, and at the end he shall be nothing the more satisfied, nay, still further off, and thinks all is lost that he gets not. And this greediness is always mixed with envy. If he happen to lose his goods, as Solomon saith, Riches taketh to her wings and flees away. It is as much as if he lost his senses, for to rob and spoil a covetous man is, as it were, to flee him, and to take away his money is to pluck out his heart, because he sets his heart all upon his money. The godly man, when he considereth these things, will say with the wise man, This is vanity and vexation of spirit. To this vanity we may resemble that of many persons, who extremely toil themselves to get honour and greatness. In this throng of people which press to get up, those behind would fain tread down those before, three quarters of them are enforced to stay behind with anger, and despite those that have got to the top of honour, pluck the ladder after them, lest others should get up by it, and when they are gotten to the top, then they show their tricks like apes got upon a house or a tree, making faces at those that are below, and set the people on gazing and gaping on them, for there their weakness best appears, and their vices are most in view. Add also that in this height they meet with more cares than before. Trees shake most at the top, pinnacles of high towers are oftenest struck with tempest and lightning. We sleep worst upon the richest and embroidered beds. We are in most danger of poison at the fullest feasts, but you never heard of any poisoned in a wooden dish. After innocent labour, sleep is sweet upon a lock of straw." This is also vanity and vexation of the spirit. This vanity, joined with a like corruption, appears especially in the court, where prime slavery goes under the colour of greatness, and golden shackles are counted a noble imprisonment. He that lives there must make account to be always masked, to play twenty several parts in one hour, to have a number of servants but never a friend. There innocence is called silliness, and a simple affirmation is a sign that there is no such matter. Two hate one each other, and both know it, yet each strives to seem to serve the other first, who shall begin and who shall be last. And with these compliments they make an interlude. Envy is never to seek for, but ever in fashion there, either to supplant, prevent, or to nibble at one another, and by no means but by slavery to avoid it. Debauched tricks and beastliness among courtiers become laws, and turn into complexion. One had need have more faith than a grain of mustard seed to keep himself there from corruption, as ravens build on high trees, so the devil nestles among great ones, and there he hatcheth and discloseth his young, which are vices, because there they are better seen and show themselves with authority. There you shall meet with some that kill one another in bravery upon the construction of a word, 
a plain proof that their life is little worth, which they set at so low a rate, but these brave lads would be soon gone if they were to suffer for God's cause. Sure, it would ask a number of those gallants to make one true evangelical martyr. Alas, how wretchedly do they understand the true point of honour. This is also an evil travail and an extreme vanity. To this also we may add the vanity of the other sex, for the greatest part of women are vain, not only through frailty and example, but by express profession. All their study is to set up vanity, and upon that they are in emulation with one another. For amidst all this worldly glory and lustre, you shall see some women swallowed up of pleasures, slaves to other fashions and faces, who out of daintiness have almost lost the use of their feet with mincing, who bestow a quarter of their life to make them ready, who buy their hair, borrow their face, make idols of their bodies, yet torture them again by a just judgment, who know nothing yet study to speak well, who look in the glass a thousand times a day and call a council about an hair. Poor souls, who, changing the colour of their hair and raising themselves upon their chapins, would make Christ believe he did not well understand himself when he said, Man cannot make an hair white or black, or add one cubit to his stature. If a man could sum up all the time that a dainty lady bestows in dressing of herself all her lifetime, it would prove a dozen years. Such curiosity is next to slavery. But who would bestow so much to any good end or purpose? How comes it to pass that clothes, which were given because of sin, are now turned into sin, that man makes that a matter of glory which God gave to cover his shame, that an argument of humility should now become a matter of pride, there is nothing more opposite to the zeal of God's glory than this loose vanity. Could a woman that wears a pair of prodigious chapins fly into another country for the cause of religion? Could so delicate a skin endure the cold and hard prison for the testimony of the gospel? She that cannot endure the heat of the sun because of her painting, could she abide the faggot for God's word? You see how we prepare for sufferings, what apprentices we are for martyrdom. Solomon saw none of this in his time, and the vanity of vanities whereof he speaks comes far short of the vanity of our age. But now behold another kind of vanity wherein men toil themselves, a bawling, roaring, and tumultuous vanity which is armed with stings and covered with subtlety, which bestows the greatest part of the time in brabbles and pleads up and down by rote. Go but into Guildhall or Court of Assizes, you will wonder at the confused turmoil and the arts of cousinage, such toilsome trotting up and down, such a dusty eagerness, and you will truly say, in all this crowd of lawyers, who sometimes speak all at once, not any one once names God, unless it be in an oath. There, while two devour one another in suit, a third man runs away with the prey, and the charges surmount the principle. What a world of people live upon the wickedness of other men! What a number should fast if others, who worry one another, should lay their malice aside. Methinks, when God looks down upon this brawling and confused throng of lawyers and their followers, they appear like ants upon a molehill, which stir pell-mell up and down without order or reason. This is also an evil travail, a vanity and vexation of spirit. Some will confess that these things are true, but will say, Yet there are some honest studies in the world some commendable knowledge and many civil and religious virtues which cannot be comprehended under this vanity, but are worthy of praise, yet even in this 
the vanity of man principally appears, for if the best of our actions be vain, how much more the vanities themselves. Let us begin with arts and sciences. Nowadays, understanding consists in the knowledge of tongues. The learned busy themselves to know what the women of Rome spake two thousand years since, what apparel the Romans did wear, in what ceremony stage plays were beheld then among the people, and to new furbish over, and refine certain Latin or Greek words which antiquity hath long buried in darkness. This is to rake a dunghill with a scepter, and to make our understanding, that should command, a drudge to a base occupation, as if a man should make all his meal of sources. The knowledge of these things is good to season, but not to nourish. Some again hunt after words in their old age, when they should have their things. Many learn their grammar with spectacles, they study to speak true Latin and are barbarous in their own tongue, and their whole life a continual incongruity. Philosophy and the arts, as they are somewhat higher, so are they somewhat harder as the pine-apples upon the top of the tree. Many fall that climb for them, many, when they have got them, break their teeth with cracking. As they teach to know more, so they perplex more. He that increaseth knowledge, saith Solomon, increaseth sorrow. Ignorance hath some commodity, and when all is done, this knowledge goes not far. For no man by philosophy can tell the nature of a fly, or an herb, much less of himself. Our spirits travel everywhere, and yet we are strangers at home. We would know all, but do nothing, for... To speak properly, our study is no labour, but a curious laziness which tires itself, and goes not forward, like squirrels in a cage, which turn up and down, and think they go apace, when they are still where they were. We learn little with great labour, and that little makes us little the better, nay, many times worse. A drop or dram of divine knowledge is more worth than all human whatsoever. To what purpose doth an attorney follow another man's cause, when himself is at suit with God? To what end doth a physician undertake to judge of another's health, if he does duly observe the pulse of his own conscience? What are we the better to know by history, what was done a great while since, and not know what to do now? Or by astronomy, to learn the motions and influences of the heavens, and not know how to come thither? Others undertake long voyages, to have many hosts and few friends. They promise to learn much, but return more fools than they went, as if they had dropped their wits by the way, and having painfully trod over a great deal of ground, at length death tumbles them into it, as flies that are so long busy with the flame, that at last they rush in, and when they have surveyed so much ground, a handful will cover them. Those are bewitched with this vanity, who go long pilgrimages to some saint to have children." and when they are come home they find some officious neighbour hath eased them of the care. This is also vanity and vexation of the spirit. It may be our civil virtues have some more substance in them, but therein vanity displays itself most, because many of those virtues are but vices brats. Collar, wets on valour, cowardice makes a man advised and wary. Ambition, avarice and envy are spurs to study and industry, Fear of disgrace and defamation makes many women chaste. Niggardness makes many moderate. Others, necessity. Friendships are contracted either for profit or pleasure, whereof the first is a frippery, the last a market. Religion itself is often used to serve our covetousness. Many follow Christ in the wilderness for bread. 
This is to make the understanding a slave to the belly, and the prince and commander of all virtues, a servant to the basest of vices. Nay, I know not which is worst, to forsake Christ or to follow him for gain, to serve Christ for money or the devil for nothing, unless we do God less injury to forsake Christ than to follow him to do him injury and make him a servant to our avarice. If these be our virtues, what shall our vices be? And what virtues can these be that thus dance after the devil's pipe? This is also vanity and a vexatious corruption. This makes some men, when they consider that vanity hath overspread all worldly things, that vice and wickedness have infected all estates and conditions of men, to the intent to wind themselves out and get away, confine themselves to deserts and a perpetual solitude, there to remain in extreme silence, and to speak with none but God and themselves, and though this solitary humour in diverse proceed from a savage disposition, in others from a weakness, and spirit not capable of the society of men, in others from an ambitious desire to be noted for some extraordinary profession, because they could not be seen enough in the common crowd, in others from anger and despite, that they have so long tired themselves in striving against the stream, and to be crossed in everything. So I doubt not, but there are some who purposely withdraw themselves, and take upon them this solitary condition, to get out of the crowd of vices, and to serve God with more liberty, but even these are deceived, and when they think to go out of the world at one door, they come in at another, for griefs of mind, perplexed thoughts, lumpish laziness, windy hypochondrical melancholy. Despair, presumption, and self-admiration steal insensibly into the mind under a profession of extraordinary sanctity, which pines the spirits of the peevishly arrogant, and of preemptory devotion which degenerates oftentimes into folly or brutishness. The solitary man hath none to comfort him in his heaviness, and having none to compare with all, thinks himself the most excellent, then also inordinate desires multiply upon him, for man ever thinks that best that is furthest off. So St. Jerome, in the midst of the wilderness and in abstinent solitude, yet burnt with incontinent affections, and his mind ran most on dancing with maids, and when the devil followed Christ into the wilderness, he thought that the fittest place for temptation. And if the devil set upon the Son of God in the desert, what monk or cloisterer thinks to go free? The safest way is to go out of the world, not with feet, but affections, and first to keep the world from nestling in our hearts or near us, lest when we go out of the world we carry it with us. For as a man may be worldly and wicked, though he make a show to live out of the world, so he may leave the world and yet never come in the wilderness, and live among a multitude as if he were alone, and even in a court or palace behold the evil travail of men, and have no share with them and where the greatest talk is, there to talk with himself alone and confer with God, and to employ himself in the edifying of the church, to direct those right that are wrong, and to bring them again into the way of heaven, and by no means to hide the talent in the ground, and to lop himself off as an unprofitable branch from the body of civil society. Thus the apostles did, and all those lights who brought so great glory to the church, and yet shine after their death. I know that Aristotle spake true in the first of his polis, that he that is disposed to solitariness is either of a divine or a base spirit, as much as to say, 
he forsakes the company of men either because his virtues are above them, or he inferior and not worthy to come among them. But I say that he that loves solitude because he excels others in virtue or knowledge ought to subdue himself and to descend by humility and gentleness to others' imperfections, bestowing himself every way in word and action to the good of the church and commonwealth. For what are all our perfections but poor shadows and obscure traces of the perfection of Christ? Yet he became like unto men, and conversed among men, that he might save men. From all which I gather this conclusion, that if it be a vanity to forsake the world, then much more to follow it, and if vices with all their mischiefs nestle in the deserts, much more in the common crowd. Surely if vanity be thus found everywhere, we may well say all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Now, while man busies himself about all his vain travail, while he thrusts time forward with the shoulders, every day begins afresh to rise up and lie down again, to fill and empty his belly like a sponge, and goes round like a mill-horse in the circle of these same tedious occupations. Behold, old age comes stealing on, which yet but a few attain unto. Every one desires to come to it, and when they are at it they wish it farther off. This is, as it were, the sink and settlings of man's life, the worst of all to the worldly, and the best to the godly. Then are worldly men more wayward than ever. Then they grow fearful and froward, and, to speak truly, weak in judgment, for we cannot properly call that humour wisdom, which is any way irksome, nor want of power sobriety. An old man does not leave pleasures, but they leave him. He complains without cause that the fashions and manners of men are changed into worse. Tis himself that is altered. When he was young, everything pleased him, though never so bad. When he is old, nothing can please him, though never so good. Like a man in a wherry, who thinks the shore moves, when tis himself. It is also a fault of old age to talk much, because they can do little. Therefore they think tis their part to teach young men, and to tell of old matters done a great while ago. So towards the declining of a state as of the Roman Empire, much talk but little actions. In the world's old age many curious disputes, but little piety and solid religion. Old age is covetous, and worldly cares then come afresh, everything grows grey and withered, save only vice. The old man the apostle so often speaks of, grows not old to the world, but is then in his prime. He sees death at hand, and holds life but like an eel by the tail, yet he devises long-breathed plots and gathers and heaps up riches together as if death were a great way off. Then is man loath to leave his life when he is least worth and little left but leaves. He never thinks of death, though his age gives him warning of it, and every grey hair serves for a summons. Nay, death oftentimes takes an earnest of him by the loss of an arm or an eye or a leg, to put him in mind that shortly after he will have the rest. Again, old men are besotted with the world through long custom and acquaintance, and are loath to leave it, though they find no good in it. This is also a vanity and vexation of the spirit. At the end of all this tedious and unprofitable travail, death comes, which takes every man away before he knows how to live in the world, much less to leave it. Most men go out of the world before they consider why they came in. They would fain adjourn time, but death will not listen to any composition. His feet are of wool, but his hands of iron. 
He comes stealing in, but what he lays hold of, he never lets go. Man makes as slow haste thither as he can. If a ship split a hundred leagues from land, every one swims as well as he can, not so much to save himself from drowning as to set the clock a little back for some minutes and persuade death to give nature a little longer time to pay the debt. This every one sees, and yet none can resolve himself. The very remembrance of death or funerals or the reading of an epitaph makes the hair stand right up and daunts and frights us. We picture death stern and starved. It mingles our compassion with horror when we think of any that late glistered in gold and glory, now crawling full of worms and intolerably stinking, while his heir laughs in his sleeve and enjoys the fruit of that labour which himself never could. And in the midst of all this dust and dirt, ambition thrusts up the head, and pride nestles in the very coffin, for they make sumptuous sepulchres, speaking stones, stately styles, upon a tomb stuck full of lies, that they which go by may say, here lies a fair stone and a foul body. Surely this is a vanity of vanities, and an extreme vanity. But all these are but roses to the thorns that follow, for the most irksome vanities and travail of this temporal life are pleasant in respect of the torments of eternal death, which is the common in and end of most men, that is the broad way that leads to damnation, few men find the narrow way to salvation. Death comes to make a press for, here there is a lacuna in the text, and enrolls great and small, wise and foolish, rich and poor, and some too that go for saints, and mask under a fine cloak of hypocrisy, as if they meant to steal to hell without any noise or trouble by the way. Hell is all fire, yet there is nothing but darkness, where souls live to be always dying but never dead, where they burn but are never consumed, complain but are not pitied, are afflicted but never repent, where the torment hath neither end nor measure. There wicked Dives, who denied Lazarus a crumb of bread, now begs but one drop of water, though all the rivers in the world cannot quench his thirst. But if those fatherly rods wherewith God chastiseth his children have brought some of them to the brink of the pit of desperation, and to curse the day of their birth, as Job and Jeremiah did, how shall his enemies endure the flails of his indignation? It is a fearful thing, says the apostle, to fall into the hands of the living God. And hear also what he says in his anger, Deuteronomy 32, If I lift up my hand to heaven and say, I live forever, if I wet my glittering sword and mine hand take hold of judgment, I will execute judgment on mine enemies and will reward them that hate me. Blessed be God, who has delivered us from this fierce wrath and furnace by his Son Jesus Christ, who, as St. Paul says, was made a curse for us, and hath called us from darkness to his marvellous light. God grant that we may never know what that torment means, and study to learn no more than may serve to keep us in his fear, and to make us acknowledge the greatness of his savour, and the excellency of our redemption in Christ Jesus his Son, blessed for ever. This precedent discourse hath led us along through all ages and ordinary conditions of human life, and in our whole travel and survey we have found nothing but vanity and vexation of spirit, which more manifestly appears if we consider the guidance and providence of God, who from the highest heavens looks down upon our actions not as an idle spectator but as a sage conductor and just judge. He derides from aloft the plots of great men, 
He blasts their devices. He confounds the tongues and spirits of the rebuilders of Babel, bruises the mighty ones, breaks the scepters into shivers, and all to make man know that he is but dust, his wisdom, ignorance, that he may learn to condemn the world, to transplant his hopes from earth to heaven, and having seen some of the brightest beams of earthly glory, which, like a flash of lightning, is soon gone, he may never say with Peter, It is good for us to be here, let us make tabernacles. Blessed is he who hath seen enough of this worldly vanity, and is drawn nearer to God, that when the storm comes he may be in the haven, and under God's wing and protection as under a safe shelter. He may behold the downfall of the wicked, the staggering of their purposes, the silliness of their hopes, and the effects of God's judgment. Hereof the prophet David cries out in the ninety-second psalm, O Lord, how glorious are thy works, and thy thoughts are very deep! An unwise man doth not well consider this, and a fool doth not understand it, when the ungodly are green as the grass, and when all the workers of wickedness do flourish, then shall they be destroyed for ever. And herein we are also to observe that this psalm is a song of the Sabbath day, to teach us that this meditation requires a settled and sequestered mind, that gets out of the crowd of worldly thoughts to enter into God's house, suitable to that in the seventy-second psalm, where he professeth that he was grieved at the prosperity of the wicked, and that it vexed him to the heart, until he went into the sanctuary of God. Then he considered the end of those men. For to know the summum bonum, and to unmask this imaginary happiness of the world, we must not go to the philosopher's school, and less believe the common judgment, but we must go into God's house, and there inquire what manner of goods they be, which God doth ordinarily bestow, and what he reserves for his own children. How uncertain worldly happiness is, in respect of the certainties of God's promises, with what easy and insensible chains the devil hails men into hell, how he triumphs over those that triumph most in this world, and think they stand sure when they are at the point of downfall. So also he considers the vainglory of men. One glories in his strength, yet a bull is stronger. Another of his beauty, which is but a superficial dye that covers the bones and the brain, things in themselves loathsome and hideous to be seen, and age will spoil and mar it all, or perhaps sickness before age comes. Another glories in his honours and dignity, but he is ever full of pensiveness and fear, and never enjoys any quiet, and imprisoned in his own perplexities, and so tied to the top that he can hardly come down without breaking his neck. Another glories that he is the bravest drunkard of all his fellows, but if his belly holds more than theirs, an hogshead holds more than his belly. All this is vanity and villainy, both alike. These are general vanity and misery, common to all men, and that's the fruit of sin. Besides these, there are some men examples of extreme wretchedness. What a number of beggars lie in the streets, how many slaves in the galleys, what sort of hirelings and mercenaries. The hundred part of men devour the rest, and the weakest are meat for the strongest. Among the Turks and pagans, which are above three-quarters of the world, men are sold like horses. He that buys them notes their countenance, looks in their mouth, tries the muscles of their arms and legs. The great princes have thousands of slaves, kept in chains to work in the sugars, or in the mines, or in the galleys, a misery more insufferable than death. Some people have night six months together, who live in caves through extremity of cold, and have no heat but what they get by cruelty. 
Others again continually scorched with the sun upon their naked sands, which are barren of fruits and fruitful of wild beasts and serpents. Our climate is as nature's garden to the intemperatures. God gives us more of his blessings, and we him the least thanks, and there is nowhere so great poverty and misery as where such abundance of blessings are so plentifully showered down, and yet so ill-handled and requited. End of section 3